it's really a mark of the desperation that these parents feel. And as one mother said, I would rather have my child die on the journey than on my doorstep. So they see that it's their only hope, even though they know it's a very dangerous route. And I can only imagine what they go through in making that decision to to put their child in the hands of smugglers. And it is an extremely dangerous journey. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from sunny Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrogi, uh, who normally comes to you from Boston, Massachusetts, but today I'm uh, at the Legal Talk Network headquarters here in Denver, Colorado. Very happy to be out here. Well, that's pretty exciting. I've never actually been there either. Well, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, Craig, as you know, uh, in uh, recent news, there's been a a lot uh, of reporting on unaccompanied minors crossing the border from Mexico into the United States. Uh, The reports indicate that a large percentage of these children are traveling from as far as South and uh, Central America. Uh, It appears uh, from the reports, the statistical trend for these instances is increasing, and there are uh, reports of agencies being just overwhelmed by the sheer numbers. Uh, a lot of, there are a lot of questions about what's causing this mass migration and what the response of the United States should be to the situation. Well, and here to discuss this topic, we welcome Alex Noresta. He is the immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Previously, he was the immigration policy analyst at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Houston Chronicle, and the Boston Globe. He has appeared on Fox News and numerous television and radio stations across the United States. He received his B.A. in economics from George Mason University and his master's in economic history from the London School of Economics. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you very much for having me. And also joining us today, we have Elizabeth Dallum. Elizabeth is the National Legal Services Director at the organization Kids in Need of Defense, otherwise known as KIND. Uh, which is a program providing pro bono legal services to children who arrive unaccompanied or alone to the United States. Uh, Previously, Elizabeth served as the Senior Protection Officer at the United Nations High Commission for Refugees in Washington, D.C. During her tenure at that organization, she acted as the agency's focal point on unaccompanied children and advocated uh, for systemic reforms in law and policy to better protect children. Prior to that, Elizabeth was the executive director of the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project in Arizona, where she started a children's representation project. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Alex, let's start with you. Let's give our audience a little bit of perspective about the situation. Please briefly tell us about the Cato Institute and what its stance is on immigration issues. Yeah, so the Cato Institute is a, uh, a libertarian think tank in Washington, D.C., and we have scholars who work on every single policy issue uh, from that perspective. And I work on immigration policy, and um, the, the policy recommendations that I make have to do with uh, 
making it easier for immigration, for legal immigration to the United States, increasing the pathways for people to come here legally, both as workers and as family members, um, finding some way to legalize, hopefully on a path to citizenship, uh, the unauthorized immigrants who are here in the United States, and trying to scale back some of the uh, more intrusive portions of immigration enforcement that we feel are a uh, threat to American civil liberties as well as to the civil liberties of immigrants. And Elizabeth, the same question to you. Tell us a little bit about KIND and the work that it does on immigration issues. Sure. Uh, KIND was founded by the Microsoft Corporation in partnership with um, Angelina Jolie, who uh, is also the UNHCR uh, Goodwill Ambassador, and I worked with her on these issues when I was at UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. And they came together to uh, see what the private sector could do in partnership with the U.S. government to meet the needs of children who arrive alone to the United States while they're in um, deportation proceedings and to ensure that every child who is going through those very complex proceedings, immigration law has been likened to the tax law and complexity, um, that they all have an attorney to represent them uh, in those proceedings and also to ensure that they receive protection, humanitarian or refugee protection, for which they may be eligible under U.S. laws. And then finally, to ensure that for those who are not eligible for any protections and who must be returned to their home countries, that they are returned safely and in a way that promotes their reintegration into the community and um, and would not promote them to migrate again. So programs in the home country. Well, Alex, you've uh, assembled a study entitled Unaccompanied Minors Crossing the Border, the Facts. Your study was based on figures provided for the U.S. Customs and Border Protections. In terms of trends, what are we seeing in terms of immigrants crossing the border illegally, and how many of those are unaccompanied children? So what we've seen, I think a little bit of history uh, is in order. We've seen a very um, steady decline in the numbers of unauthorized immigrants being apprehended coming across the southwest border since about 2005 and 2006. So in those years, and the the, the number of apprehensions is probably the best uh, proxy measurement we have for the numbers and intensity of unlawful immigrants trying to cross the border. So we saw in like 2005 and 2006 over a million unauthorized immigrants apprehended uh, by Border Patrol at the border. Uh, in 2013, we saw just 414,000 uh, apprehended. So between uh, 2006 and 2013, uh, obviously a lot has happened in the United States. Um, there, there's been quite a severe recession, low economic growth since then, um, as well as stepped-up border enforcement. So as a result of those two factors, primarily the recession, we've seen just a, a large decrease in numbers of people trying to come into the United States unlawfully uh, across the southwest border, the largest decrease being uh, Mexicans who have um, really slowed down um, unauthorized immigrant rate coming across the border. However, for Central Americans in total, there was just a slight dip in uh, 2010 and 2011, and otherwise a fairly steady increase in the number of unauthorized immigrants from those countries coming into the United States um, during that period. Now, during this time period, we have also seen a large increase in the numbers of uh, unaccompanied minors, that is, minors coming across the border um, uh, by themselves that are apprehended by Customs and Border uh, Protection or just encountered by Customs and Border Protection. 
So in fiscal year 2009, according to CBP, um, about 19,000 or so um, unaccompanied minors were encountered by CBP. For the last year for which we have full data, which was 2013, 38,000 came across, so that was a doubling. Um, and so far in this fiscal year, there have been just about 50,000. And we still have several months to go with some estimates estimating that we could get up to um, 90,000 total number of un um, unaccompanied children. So you've seen in just the, the, since 2009 a, about, uh, a rapid increase in the number of unauthorized unaccompanied children coming across the border. And the big increase has been from Central American countries. Um, like Honduras, uh, Guatemala, and El Salvador especially, where you've seen uh, quite a large number. I mean, the number of Guatemalans, uh, unaccompanied children, for instance, went up from about 1,000 to almost 12,000 uh, in this year so far, uh, Hondurans from less than 1,000 up to over 13,000 this year. Meanwhile, the number of Mexicans has fallen from 16,000 in 2009 to uh, about 11,500 so far in 2014. So these are the trends that we're seeing uh, so far. Elizabeth, does that reflect what you're saying? Do those numbers sound right to you? And, and, and how do you explain this? Why is this happening? Yes, it does sound right to me. And I think that the reason that the number of unaccompanied children is going up relates to all of the data that Alex mentioned, which is that the number of individuals from Central America overall is increasing, and the majority of these children are from Central America, primarily Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. That is the majority of the clients that we are serving nationwide. And um, the reason that this is happening, this is really a regional refugee humanitarian crisis. Um, what we are seeing is that numbers are not only up from these three countries in the United States, they're up in the region the UN Refugee Report Agency reports that the number of individuals from Central America and children in particular from Central America in the in the whole region has been going up. For example, Mexico, Panama, Nicaragua, Costa Rica and Belize saw a 712% increase in the number of asylum applica applications from citizens of these three countries. So what's happening is in these countries is a dramatic rise in violence. These three countries are four are, are three out of the top five in the world in terms of murder rates. And primarily it's gang violence that is plaguing these countries. And children within these countries are the most vulnerable. The gangs are specifically targeting them to join their ranks and refusal can escalate to killing them and girls to be their sexual slaves. So it's a very, very serious, to me, refugee crisis. They're also, some of the children are fleeing um, domestic abuse situations as well, but the majority that we see um, are, are really afraid of the gangs. And what about the parents? I mean, as a parent myself, I can't imagine sending my kids across the border unaccompanied. Any contact, any word, or any kind of sense of why they're letting their children go, or are the children just running away? You know, it varies. Some of, sometimes it is the children that are making the decision because they are not safe. Sometimes there is no parent in their life, no parental caretaker. And when there is a parent, it, it's really a mark of the desperation that these parents feel. And as one mother 
said, I would rather have my child die on the journey than on my doorstep. So they see that it's their only hope, even though they know it's a very dangerous route. And I can only imagine, you know, what they go through in making that decision to to put their child in the hands of smugglers. And it is an extremely dangerous journey. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that, that that push factor of the violence explains certainly a large amount of the number of children um, uh, fleeing these countries and coming to the United States. I think an underreported re- under reason, though, is also uh, the, the pressure of uh, family reunification uh, in the United States. So, uh, and, and citing the UNHCR report from uh, last year that came out, that did surveys of 404 of these unaccompanied minors uh, apprehended in the border along the United States, and they asked them a series of questions, a battery of questions. Elizabeth is, of course, very familiar with this. (laughs) But they asked a series of questions, and one of the questions was, um, you know, do you have one or both parents living in the United States currently? And for El Salvadoran uh, children, it's 49% said at least one parent, Guatemalan 27%, Honduran 47%. Uh, Mexican, 22%, with about 36% of all of these kids saying that they had at least one parent in the United States. And I think the reason why this is significant is since 2005, the number of unauthorized immigrants in the U.S. from these Central American countries has risen by over 60%. And one of the patterns of migration that we've seen throughout history uh, to the United States is that oftentimes uh, one or both parents will come first and leave their kids behind uh, hopefully with caretakers, but sometimes not, they will get established in the United States and then send for their children um, when they are able to financially send for them. And um, there's usually a delay of a few years here. So what we saw is the collapse in um, or the decrease in the Mexican children who were coming across unaccompanied uh, occurred after a couple of years after Mexican illegal immigration slowed down dramatically. And now we're seeing sort of this rise in unauthorized immigrant children who are reuniting with their unauthorized immigrant parents from Central America in the United States. And I think this, uh, that, explain, that, that, that must explain a, a portion of it as well. I would agree with that. I mean, I think it does explain a portion, but I think rather than, in some circles, rather than that being underreported, I think it may be seen as a major pull factor. And as you know, the UNHCR study it demonstrated that children had a variety of motives for for leaving, and family reunification uh, was definitely one of them in a high number of the cases, but it was also cited in many of the cases in which it was the violence that um, also pushed them to leave. So it, it is a complex situation. Yeah, and one of the other factors, sorry, just to chime in really quick, because the, 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 this other factor is said frequently, I think, way too often, is the change in uh, U.S. laws or enforcement priorities that are so, uh, you know, supposedly um, incentivizing a large number of these children to come. And sort of the, the rhetoric that we hear oftentimes is that, you know, the Obama administration is giving a free pass, so all these children are coming because they think they can get a free pass. Like in that HCR study, only nine out of the 404 respondents even mentioned U.S. law having to do at all with any of their decisions, and certainly wasn't the most important reason for almost any of them. And that's just over 2% of the respondents. So um, it's really ridiculous right now how much play that justification is getting in the media relative to the almost insignificant importance it must play 
in pulling unauthorized accompanied minors here. Let me interrupt here because we need to take a quick break. And before we move on to our next segment, we will hear a message from our sponsor and be right back. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi, and uh, joining my co-host, Jake Craig Williams, and I today are uh, Alex Narasta from the Cato Institute and Elizabeth Dallum from KIND. Uh, Elizabeth, tell us about what is the legal status of these unaccompanied minors? Is it different uh, than, than others who are coming across the border? Under U.S. law, an unaccompanied child, unless they are from Mexico, must be placed into immigration uh, removal proceedings before an immigration judge. Um, adults can be subjected to what's called expedited removal. So they're screened for an asylum claim, and if they do not have one, they can be returned to their home country if they come unlawfully. Children, because they are children, have been exempt from that process so that there is a little bit more protection. Um, However, given our mission, you can probably understand that there is no public defender system to date for children who are in immigration court proceedings. The government has recently come up with some positive initiatives to provide counsel, but so far it's not 100% coverage. Um, But in that process, they do have some opportunities for legal relief in the United States. One is asylum, so if they are fleeing from persecution or there's a risk of future persecution, Another is special immigrant juvenile status, which is for children who have been abused, abandoned, or neglected by a parent and are in need of, it's in their best interest to not return to their home country. Then there are visas for children who have been subjected to trafficking, which unfortunately does happen for some of these Central American children along the way. The smuggling turns into a trafficking situation. They get detained, forced into forced labor situations or forced prostitution, and we have seen some children who are miraculously able to escape and make it to the United States. Um, and then... The other- now are, you, are you providing direct legal services for these children, or are you, how are they finding you, and what are you doing for them when, when, they, when they find you? Sure, there's a network of legal services providers. Once a child is apprehended by the Border Patrol... Uh, they are placed in federal custody and in generally in shelters, although right now there are uh, large emergency uh, places being set up at 
Air Force Base in Lachlan, for example, and other places. But generally, there have been legal services providers that give the children orientations as to what's happening and provide them with a legal assessment of their case. In my organization, we have eight offices nationwide. We're the only agency that provides representation, free representation to children um, in such a large measure across the country. And what we do is we get the cases from those that legal network that meets with them in the shelter care facilities, and then we recruit, train, and mentor private law firm and corporate attorneys to take these cases. How much does it cost to have a child smuggled across the border when a parent is here in the United States? They hire or, or get money to a smuggler. What does it cost them to do this? We've heard that it costs anywhere from five to eight thousand dollars, and most of these families are going into debt to to raise that money, um, whether the parent is in the home country or or here. Um, a lot of them don't actually have it on hand, which shows the level of desperation. Particularly, like some some of the families in Central America are going into debt uh, with their land as lean on the debt. And what ultimately happens to the children? Do they get sent back? Are they patriated here? Or they what, what happens? Well, as I said, once they're apprehended um, and placed into federal custody, if they do have a parent or another relative or someone who will take care of them, then they're released to that person, and then they do have to go through a legal process, the immigration court process, which can take quite some time. But the idea is then that system will decide whether or not the child qualifies for any of the protections I mentioned. And if not, the child will be order, either ordered, removed, or allowed to voluntarily return to their home country. Alex, you've looked at this issue, obviously, quite carefully and, and studied the numbers. What does this lead you to from a, from a policy perspective? It should, should the United States be doing something differently here than from what it's doing now? Well, I, yeah, I think uh, I think we can all agree on uh, immigration law should be done quite differently, not just for these children, but I think for uh, everybody who wishes to come to the United States. I think um, one easier thing that could happen is to uh, uh, streamline a lot of the asylum process, so that a lot of people can, uh, you know, so it can be a less arduous process, take less time, um, have lower standards for what qualifies as violence or um, so, so that people can get in under these asylum standards a lot easier. I think another important thing we can do is if the unauthorized Central American immigrant population in the United States was legalized then and eventually given green cards and citizenship or given those things uh, quite rapidly, then they could use the uh, family immigration system to reunify with their children here in the United States, uh, cutting out the smugglers and replacing that with a bus or plane ticket on the legal market. Another way um, that I've heard recently discussed is to open up the U visa a bit more and make it so that uh, a lot of these uh, kids with some help could apply from uh, American embassies and consulates in these home countries um, and, and get in through that program, expand that program and reform it to make it open to a lot of these people coming in. Um, and then there's, of course, a lot of this streamlining that has to go on with the uh, the bureaucracy dealing with the 10 kids right now in the United States, getting them with their families more rapidly who are here, getting them in the care of uh, private organizations uh, like KIND that are trying to help them out, uh, get them uh, attached to people in the United States and take care of them. And basically as rapidly as possible, taking into account the interests 
of the child, of course, um, getting them into um, the, the United States and out of detention facilities, I think, are some of the, the small things that we can do right off the bat uh, to improve the situation for everybody. What's the public policy situation about immigration at this current point? Uh, let's go back in time. My grandparents came over from Europe through Ellis Island. And I, as I recall, the public policy at that point, it was we needed laborers, we needed workers, so let's open up our borders and bring them in. What's the fundamental, basic public policy on immigration right now? The fundamental public policy system right now is uh, every single immigrant is considered to be bad for the United States unless they can specifically prove that they fit into a very narrow set of categories. You know, a high-skilled worker sponsored by an American firm, uh, if they are closely related to an American, small numbers of refugees and asylees and a diversity visa. If you notice, I didn't. there's no category for a low-skilled worker without an American family to come here on a green card and to work. Um, legally, like almost all of our ancestors did when they came here. So we're essentially saying we're essentially saying we have enough workers. We don't need any more. Stay out. That's uh, essentially what the immigration policy in this country has been um, since about 1921. For some categories of people prior to that, like the Chinese, it's been closed. It was closed in 1882. Um, so we we did a real about face. I mean, the United States literally had open borders from 1790 to 1882. And then between 1882 and 1921, it systematically closed it to different groups of people, often on racial, ethnic lines, and other lines. And then from 1921 to uh, 65, it was largely closed off to almost everybody around the world. And it's been gradually open since then, but it's still nowhere near the amount of openness that we saw in the early years of the American Republic or the late 19th century. And as a result of that, um, there's still an enormous economic reason for people to come to this country. Um, however, the legal system does not allow that. So we're stuck with situations, unfortunately, like this, where we have people coming over unlawfully, and then they send for their children, uh, or their children come over for other reasons because they're pushed out by violence, and the legal system can't handle it because it's not open enough. Elizabeth, what about you? Do you have thoughts uh, from a policy perspective of, of how we should be responding to this crisis? Yes, I would say as a policy, we have to be careful not to have a knee-jerk enforcement response. Um, I think that's what governments often are inclined <laughs> to do when they feel overwhelmed by by numbers um, or they see a big surge, um, and that to ensure that our, you know, the U.S. is a world leader in refugee protection, we re- we receive the most resettled refugees in the world, and we provide the most funding toward refugee protection. And so we have to make sure that we remember that these are children and that they, many of them, um, may have uh, refugee protection needs or they're fleeing violence or domestic abuse and that they receive protection. I also think it's important to look at the root causes of the migration and, and have a comprehensive approach that's not just based on immigration policy, but also on foreign policy and in foreign aid and um, invest in the child welfare systems and rule of law and security in these countries. Yeah, I think I think there's no doubt that American policy, especially in Central and South America, having to do with the drug war and the funding that we give to security and police forces down there to uh, prosecute that war, 
um, to an insane degree is a big part of the problem. Um, The drug war has a lot of casualties around the world and the United States, but it seems to be hitting Central America the worst. So if we could pull back or end the drug war, that would have a huge consequence. And, uh, And to people out there who say that we need more enforcement or a lack of enforcement is the problem, um, what we're seeing right now, this, this ugly situation right now with these horrible pictures of these kids in detention facilities, um, this is enforcement in action. Um, it's easy to sit back and, be, and sit at home and watch TV and hear about kids coming across the border and say we need more police on the border and law enforcement and everything else. Um, and, and to have a gut reaction that these pictures are nasty. But these nasty pictures, a lot of them are the result of a heavy-handed enforcement-only policy. And what we need to do is have a legal immigration policy that works and allows a lot of these people to come legally so they don't have to resort to such desperate measures like hiring smugglers to enter the United States. Do we actually have a separate policy for children, or is it just one policy to keep everybody out? Pretty much one policy, right? <laughs> There are some more protections for children who are brought in. Elizabeth uh, mentioned some of those uh, protections. But basically, it's um, like most government programs, a one-size-fits-all, very restrictive system that uh, applies to everybody um, equally poorly. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program, so it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts and your contact information so our listeners can reach out to you if they would like to. So, Elizabeth, let's start with you. Sure. Um, I think I would just like to close by saying that, um, you know, we, we applaud many of the government's actions to date to deal with the emergency, um, but we would really uh, encourage uh, more resources for the immigration court system and more resources for lawyers for these children to ensure that their cases are, are heard and to, again, look at these children as children first and their protection needs. And in order to contact me, our website is www.supportkind.org. And my email is edallam, which is E-D-A-L-L-A-M, at supportkind.org. Great. Alex? Cato's website is cato.org where you can read a lot of my other writings on immigration. Basically, what we're seeing right now on the border with these unaccompanied minors is a, a tragic, unanticipated consequence of a, a restrictive immigration policy that does not allow people to come to this country lawfully, um, except in very rare circumstances. Uh, this is in just a small microcosm that shows how broken our immigration system is and how desperately we need reform. Um, for refugees, for asylees, for children, for adults, and for every other group of people. Um, it's not only good for the immigrants themselves, but also good for the United States. You can read more about this at uh, cato.org, C-A-T-O.org, or you can email me at anarasta, that's A-N-O-W-R-A-S-T-E-H, at cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Great. Thank you very much. Well, now Bob and I have the opportunity to take 30 seconds to share our closing thoughts before we get cut off by the buzzers. So, Bob, you're up. Well, I thought uh, Elizabeth really said it well early in the show when she talked about this as a refugee humanitarian crisis. Uh, it's, it's a horrible situation, and it certainly underscores and dramatizes uh, the need for 
reform of our immigration laws. And on a more, I guess, practical and immediate basis, I would just want to underscore again what Elizabeth said, which is that there are lawyers needed to help these people and that uh, they can go to this web, this organization's website at supportkind.org. And uh, I'm looking at it right now. The website has a lot of information on how attorneys, uh, law firms, and, and corporations can uh, volunteer their services and get involved in this. Craig, how about you? Well, you know, we're coming up on nearly 100 years worth of an immigration ban, so it doesn't seem to be to be realistic to expect that anytime soon we're going to be changing the immigration laws or reforming them. But I do think that it's important to change those laws and reform them as it relates to children at a very minimum. Obviously, we protect our children in just about every circumstance that they get involved in. And it's no different if the children are coming across the border and they belong to somebody who wasn't born here. They're still children. They don't know better. So we need to take some steps to fix that and protect them. And I think we need to take some steps in the root country itself to try, as as I think Alex mentioned, uh, the drug war is causing a lot on this and we need to give a lot of this immigration and we need to give some thought about the effect on children and what we can do in the Central American countries to protect them there so that they don't feel a need to travel across the border and put themselves in unsafe situations. Yeah. And we, we should explain that that little buzzer is our, our little timer that's telling us we've, we've run out of time. But I would like to just thank uh, Alex and Elizabeth very much for taking the time to be with us. This is a really fascinating discussion, and your insights were uh, really appreciated. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for a great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.